Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Newsmakers, in which we'll be talking about the reduced attention span in children and how that's affecting their education. With me to talk about this is Head of Education and Media Technology at the International School of Luxembourg, John Micton. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege to be here to talk on this topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on as well. And it, I think it's a topic that a lot of people uh, are interested in, to be honest. Um, I mean, I was, I, was, I was at the doctor's last uh, weekend, uh, last week, and uh, I mentioned that, oh, I hope I have my voice back on Monday because I'm doing a podcast recording, right? So my, my doctor, she asked me, oh, so what are, you, what are you going to talking about? And I'd say to her, I'm going to talk about the reduced uh, attention span. And she was like, oh, my son needs to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, what's really interesting, it is becoming a very uh, prominent topic. But the thing that I think we were talking offline is that we need to understand that reduced attention span sometimes is is modeled by ourselves as adults. And I think we all struggle with attention span with our phones and when in the day where we have to multitask and there are many demands on us within a working day and then you come back as a parent and then you have your children that you're trying to support and your own work that sometimes bleeds into the evening, I think we're all struggling with attention span. It's, it's quite challenging and I think uh, we need to be mindful that uh, the kids don't get Uh, a bad attention span on their own. They are seeing models, they're seeing behaviors around them that exemplify that, that then they copy. Mm, okay, Be um, just before we get into uh, the thick of it, if you will, uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview What do you do at the ISL? What is your experience yeah. with education? Okay. I've been an international school educator for the last 30 years, working in uh, Africa, Asia, Europe currently. Mm. I've been at the International School of Luxembourg. My role, there's a team of us, of uh, digital learning coaches, librarians, and then IT and application support. Uh, people and we manage and support the teachers, the students, and the parents with different digital ecosystems, not only on the technical side, but also on the pedagogic side. So I have a wonderful team of digital learning coaches and librarians that uh, work on digital literacy, digital citizenship, information literacy. So we kind of, the role is uh, managing and working with these two different groups of people in very close collaboration with teachers and our principals and the school director. Mm, right. So you, in essence, you're making sure that they use these tools that they have in the best possible way. That's the goal. Absolutely. And also make sure the systems are up and working and functioning and that we're responsive to the needs of the school community. Mm. Right then. Um, so let's start with a simple question. Maybe the answer is a bit more complicated, but why do we see a short attention span in students nowadays? So uh, that is a great question, and we could very likely spend hours. I'm not a psychologist or a doctor. What I'm going to do is give really my perspective as an educator that's been supporting parents, students, and teachers over the last few years. I think one of the things is the way our digital ecosystems are designed, uh, We there is this idea that companies that provide these services want you to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. The reason they want you to keep coming back is there's this thing called uh, behavior surplus. So the behaviors that are associated with our usage of digital devices actually can be very 
uh, informative for companies to curate then the experiences that we have. The more they know about us, the better they can provide services. Now, these services sometimes, as we all enjoy the kind of easiness of uh, turning on an app and being able to get to a, a hotel or get our favorite movie, that fluidity and that seamlessness is something that is really pleasant. And it's really nice to have free email and things like that. The payoff that we are doing as we get these free services, as somebody said, if the product is uh, the, no product is free. So if the product is free, that means you are the product. In other words, your behavior, the behaviors that are associated the way you interact with these digital tools is what is being curated. And based on that behavior, then they can design experiences to make sure that you keep coming back. And that's the idea of behavior surplus. The term is actually uh, from a book called Surveillance Capitalism by Dr. Shoshana Zuboff, who's a professor at Harvard. And she wrote the seminal book about what they call surveillance capitalism. It's the idea that there's this whole money being made, all these profits are being made on surveilling human behavior. And what's very interesting, if you think most resources, when you have to, uh, if you're a company and you have a commodity that you turn into a product, you usually have to invest money to dig, maybe for oil or whatever it might be. There's always an initial cost. What's very interesting with behavior surplus, there's no cost to our behavior. As we interact with these free tools, we're giving out that behavior. So every morning when you get on your phone or on your laptop, that behavior is being monitored and watched. And based on that behavior, then different experiences are curated for you. And uh, so right. this is what's kind of the new creative tension of the age that we are. We have the the seamlessness and the uh easy access to these tools, but the payoff is that our behavior is being then curated to turn into different types of experiences that generate a profit uh, for a lot of companies. Right. So we can say with a certain degree of certainty that um, this, these new digital developments have led to us having uh, a shorter uh, attention span and that reflects into, into children's education as well. So I think what we know is if you think of TikTok or even Twitter, most of those apps, it's all very short term. The content is very short. And so we often tend to have a much, if we are only looking at short content, that becomes almost like an expectation. And so I think what we're seeing is we're multitasking. So our mind is broken up on attention with many different things. I think many mm -hmm. people at work look at their phone, they have their email going, they might have Slack, they might also have a Word doc. So there are multiple things happening at the same time and your attention then is divided and it's not as focused as on being on one thing. I yeah. think what we need to understand uh, is with children, how does that connect to children? And I think your question's an important one. There is an author called Mary Aiken and she says we're asking the wrong question. We shouldn't be asking at what age is it appropriate to give a child a digital device. 
we should be asking at what a when is it appropriate for an adult to have a digital device in front of a child because right. that behavior has a marked influence on how the child perceives the use of digital devices and the behaviors associated with it. So if you're on your phone constantly around your children, they're going to see that as a point of reference, which then they might construct their own understanding when they mm -hmm. get the phone that it's something that you're constantly on. So that is a very, I think, challenging and delicate thing to be mindful of is what is your responsibility as an adult, your behaviors and your multitasking and short attention, how does that model for the children that are watching you as you work with your devices? And then they construct their own understanding. Mm. So in a, in a sense, maybe, um, or obviously this uh, behavior is copied or mimicked from adults into children. Um, maybe should we say that adults or parents need to also be better informed or better educated on how to use their devices and how to teach their children about using their devices as well? Yeah, I think, you know, I think you and I were talking, we're both very, there's a kind of an addiction component to our phones mm -hmm. and the multimedias and the social medias that we work with. And yeah, I think it's very challenging. I don't think it's easy to do, to get off your phone and not watch your Instagram feed. I think absolutely education is a very powerful way to engage parents to better understand what are some strategies and what are some dispositions that they might want to explore in their own context to support that more balanced approach to digital devices, especially when modeling that with children. Do we have then any evidence that this impacts education now? Because when I was growing up, we didn't have uh, smartphones and I had a pretty hard time paying attention at school, to be yeah. honest. I, you know, I'm going to be a little cautious because there is research. I think what we do understand, schools that have laptop programs, and many schools do, or devices in uh, high school, what we know is that for students, sometimes it's challenging to be focused on one tab in their browser. They might have four or five tabs, and so they're always distracted. And there are definitely strategies that teachers engage with where they set up the room, where the screens are facing the teacher, and where you can kind of develop some dispositions and habits, but that's something that has to be taught. And I think, mm. you know, scaffolding that from a younger age, as you have kids work with digital devices, really be explicit in teaching them how to have a balanced approach. When is it appropriate to be on the screen? Mm. When is it not? What is the purpose for being on the screen? What is the outcome of this experience on the screen? Are we producing something? Are we creating something? Or are we just consuming? It's so really navigating that, I think, is what many schools are have engaged with through digital literacy programs and digital citizenship programs. So schools definitely are very mindful of that, and there are programs that are supporting it. And then many schools reach out to the parent community and provide workshops. But I mm -hmm. think all of us as, as a group of people that are on devices understand the challenges and definitely any strategies or uh, lessons or workshops, I think, are always very welcome from parent communities and mm. schools. Um, then I'm, I'm thinking, are there any, any concrete results we can see from this uh, attention uh, span deficit? Is the, do people consume uh, content or news differently now than they would have before as a result? 
So there's kind of two parts to your question. The first one is about attention. So Clifford Nass, who was a professor at Stanford University, really was the first one to look at uh, multitasking. And he, uh, Stanford University and his team got young undergraduates to drive and text at the same time to see what their attention span was. And many of the students came in and said they could multitask. So they could be on a chat, they could be listening to Spotify, they might watch a YouTube and doing their homework and doing their research. What the research showed is actually nobody can multitask very well. They thought they were because they were able to do multiple things. But what the research showed from Clifford Nass was that they actually are not very good at any at one single thing. And that divided attention basically generates more of a surface engagement than a very deep engagement. Uh, So I think that's one thing that is uh, something to be mindful of. The other thing is also this idea that screens are not created equal. So the idea that we're always on screens, often parents will be like, my child's always on the screen or uh, in a relationship, my boyfriend's always on the screen or my wife's always on the screen. What we need to understand is what we mean by screens are not all created equal. That means when you're on a screen, there are different things you could be doing. So if I'm on a screen editing a movie, that's quite purposeful. It's requiring me to critically think, problem solve, and I'm creating something that I'm going to share out. If I'm just sitting on my phone doing Candy Crush, there is not much engagement. It's very much more just uh, kind of relaxing and not having to think too much. The same when we think of binge watching with Netflix. That's often very relaxing. But when we spend four hours watching a TV series, you're not really creating or producing. So it's a different type of cognitive skills that are required. So I think it's always important to be careful to say, oh, this screen time is bad. It depends what you're doing on the screen. If a parent is with their child on a screen and the child has a YouTube playlist, maybe they're sitting down and talking about, oh, why do you like this band? Oh, this is an interesting game. So you're having this engaging conversation and together are having a shared experience. That can be very rich. So it's about how do you manage that screen time and what is the purpose and what is the outcome? And I think we just need to be mindful that there are very good things to do on the screen as well, maybe not as good things. And it's balancing, understanding when it is good screen time and when it is bad, but all screens are not created equal. Right. Um, And this sort of uh, leads me to thinking about how people um, have a different tendency to consume content nowadays, for example, uh, maybe from articles, personal example for me, obviously, but people often read the headline they read the subhead and then that's it. They think they've heard enough or they've read enough. Um, is, is, isn't this a bit uh, negative in a certain sense uh, for how we um, perceive information and content? That's a really good uh, question and also a really good observation because the way, if you look at the way the phone is designed, if you have the Guardian or Le Monde or any newspaper, it's really designed on the small screen only to see the headlines and the tagline. So what tends to happen, and I'm guilty of it, I tend to hit the headline and read the tagline. And generally, I very likely read far less of the articles than if I have a paper copy. So I actually get The Economist print version. I find I'm far more, uh, far more 
engaged with the print version, I dedicate an hour and a half. I don't have distractions. But when I'm reading The Guardian or any newspaper, Le Monde, whatever it might be, my notifications might come up and then I'm distracted and I'll go and quickly go to Instagram or an email will come in from work. So definitely we're not engaging maybe at some levels as deeply. There is a much more uh, research and quite a few uh, university research centers are looking at the idea of skim reading. If you're only skim reading, and especially if you think of children as they develop their capacity to think critically on texts, if they're only skimming them, they're not getting the experiences of delving deep into a text and doing cr critical analysis and literacy analysis. So the importance of the role of schools where you're still sitting down and doing a book analysis is really important because as you were mentioning, that gives you these critical skills, these critical thinking skills, problem solving skills. It allows you to understand perception, maybe narrative from fiction and uh, what your sources are. All these information literacy skills are so important. And I think it has been evidenced in kind of the political landscape that we've all experienced with the polarization in some countries with different political parties. Because what's happening is if I'm always looking at the blue party or the green party or the purple party, and all my media is focused on that, the algorithms are going to notice that's what I like and that's what they're going to serve me. Yeah. And Elor Passar talks about the filter bubble. So we have kind of a filter bubble around our news consumption, which is news delivered to what we want to see and read. The problem with that is then often you don't get as many different perspectives and it becomes more tunnel vision. And I think we've seen that evidence. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, there's Social Dilemma was a movie. There's quite a few uh, things in the press and in media highlighting this idea that this polarization is caused by this curation of news feeds based on the behavior that we're sharing and that companies then take that behavior and deliver services according to what our wishes and wants are more than thinking about us being exposed to multiple different perspectives and engaging us to think critically about them. Yeah, and, and actually, if you, if you think about it, the younger generation, at least in Luxembourg or in Western Europe, they're more engaged into social issues and they're more engaged, if, if you will, um, the climate strike was uh, last uh, weekend, there were a lot of young people there, uh, that's one example, and if uh, younger people are having a, a less um, are less prepared to be critical of the information that they read, but at the same time have a tendency to be more engaged uh, socially, isn't that a bad cocktail? Isn't that a bad combination where people tend to be very engaged, but they don't really know why they're engaging in it? That's yeah. So that uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to be the judge if it's a bad or good cocktail. But I would say definitely, you know, the the plus side is, for example, uh, the Black Lives uh, Matters movement, the Me Too movement. Those are evidences of where social media has had a very positive impact in a very short time. Large audiences have engaged with really important issues that maybe were not addressed before. And climate change is another example. You know, uh, young activists can 
can post something and very quickly there's a following on Instagram and suddenly you go to a park in your city and there's a, a very engaging, exciting event regarding highlighting the climate change issue. So that for sure. I think where it gets more nuanced is the idea is if they're only seeing one type of social media feed, which is that there's an issue with climate change. But of course, there's the other issue where there's social media saying climate change is not an issue. It's, right. it's fake news. So when you have those two feeds not separately and different audiences interacting, there's no cross-pollination. And often when the cross-pollination happens, what often happens, it becomes far more contentious because people don't have those different perspectives. So I think that in itself could be more complicated. And I think that's been evidenced in some of the political narratives we've seen uh, with elections and also different social justice issues. Mm. Uh, so then, John, very finally, what can educators or parents do to undo the damage that has been done by uh, overconsumption uh, of, of um, digital content in, in a negative way by young people who then have this uh, in, inability to process information in a critical way or inability to uh, remain focused on something for long? What can we do about it? So I think the first thing to do is really allow adults to find the space to self-reflect on your own habits. Maybe turn off notifications. Maybe look at the way you're using your devices and how much of your day is spent on devices and think about, is the use of the device very productive? Is there value added? And then based on that, also about shared experiences, modeling that. So if your child is sitting down with a device, maybe find some shared family device time, maybe watch a movie together, play a game together. I think these shared experiences where you and the child are really working with each other and asking questions and reflecting is a really good way to develop some balance. The idea is we want not to say no to devices, we want it to be a balanced approach where there's moments, there's good device time, we take the device off and maybe play a game or go for a walk. So it's about balancing that. And I think so often as adults, we understand that, but it's sometimes good just to do a little audit of your own device use and think, okay, in the day, how much am I on the device? When I'm in front of my kids, do the, is the device put away? Or do I kind of, from the corner of my eye, look at my work email while I'm talking to my child? So those are things I think to self-reflect on. And uh, there's a great uh, organization called Tactical Technology Collective out of Berlin, and they have a whole series of resources for parents and educators called datadetox.org. And they have a lot of very concrete uh, manuals and interactive activities for parents and students to look at their uh, consumption of digital uh, tools and also gives them some strategies to kind of detox. How can you regain that balance? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm sure some self-reflection will be very helpful for all of us. Um, so then, John, thanks a lot for your time and for sharing your thoughts and for this uh, insightful conversation. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure being on live. Mm -hmm. And uh, thanks a lot to our listeners. That just about concludes this episode. We'll catch you in a few weeks' time. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on delano.lu.